0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 5th, a Sunday, 2023. Uh, Earlier today, I talked to the semaphore economic correspondent she used to work at the Wall Street Journal, Liz Hoffman. She has a new book out, Crash Landing, the inside story of how the world's biggest companies survived an economy on the brink. It's a book about COVID and our recovery from COVID. And one of the interesting things that uh, Liz and I discussed was the post-COVID economy. She couldn't quite work it out. Most of us can't. On the one hand, it seems quite promising. On the other hand, it seems dire, perhaps even apocalyptic. Uh, The question, of course, is is asking the right questions about our post-COVID world, which we seem to be emerging from. Uh, My guest today, Chris Shipley, um, claims at least to know how to ask the right questions. And those right questions underlie a book that's just come out that she co-authored with Heather McGowan called The Empathy Advantage. Uh, It's a book about an empowered workforce in a post-COVID world. Chris, who uh, I've known for a few years, we couldn't remember how we've met, um, is another tech person, and she's joining us from her home in Redwood City. Chris, um, you claim to ask the right questions questions, which is your secret source. What are the right questions to ask about our post-COVID economy?
1: Well, I'm not sure I claim to ask the right questions, but I do ask a lot of questions trying to get to the right question. And and I don't think there is any one correct question. I think that the real challenge with uh, our post-COVID economy, as you call it, is that we actually don't know what the questions are. We don't know what the future is. And we're I'm largely unwilling to admit it. So we're um, creating a lot of answers to questions that we can't even be asking right now. And that is, I think, gets us in a world of hurt. Well,
0: there's that old uh, Rumsfeld, I'm not sure how serious he was about uh, knowing the questions. You say we don't know the questions, but we know the general area. Um, what should we be asking ourselves, Chris? And what did you ask yourself Uh, you and uh, Heather McGowan in this book, uh, The Empathy Advantage.
1: Yeah, well, we set out, uh, we we wrote a book, uh, we finished it in 2019 called The Adaptation Advantage, where we posited that because our identities are so closely tied to work, that when those identities, when our work identity shifts, we find ourselves in in a really challenging place. Um, that book was uh, launched, went, went uh, on sale in early April 2020. We had planned a book that was going to have the kind of um, book launch you'd expect in a pre-pandemic world, and then suddenly we had to adapt. And that book became a sort of accidental guide to leading in the pandemic because everything was changing for everyone, and most of the future was largely unknowable. We wrote this book, The Empathy Advantage, sort of on the back end of that that pandemic as an understanding that while the pandemic didn't necessarily cause so much change, it certainly amplified it. And that leading a workforce coming out of the pandemic is very different from what we might have done before it. The workforce being far more empowered, having its agency, um, the epidemic of, of the Great Resignation, which actually has its roots more than a decade ago. All of those things mean that that workers have a lot more um, a, a tiny agency in their work and how they work and expecting to drive a command and control workplace, is probably not gonna lead to the results you think it will. So that was, that was the question that we asked around this book was how, how do we lead now? coming out of this period of so much turmoil
0: why do you think covid was so profoundly traumatic why did it change everything i I have to admit i'm actually not convinced it did i think it's become a truism a cliche what is it about covid that changed everything perhaps more we talk with um, liz hoffman for example about comparing the COVID economic crisis, with the crisis of uh, two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. What is it about COVID that's changed our our lives, particularly our working lives, so dramatically, Chris?
1: Well, as I said, I think that the, the pandemic didn't itself was um, not the the change agent, but it was an amplifier of change, at least from a working perspective that were already underway, except that the whole office dynamic shifted overnight. We went from uh, people, leaders saying, I'll never uh, support a a work-from-home workplace to I have no choice but to support a work-from-home workplace. We saw in a matter of months as much as five years' worth of uh, digital transformation in organizations. So it was um, an amplifier, I think, that caused leaders to really rethink how they interact with their, their people. They weren't watching their work every day. They were finding ways to um, engage and communicate and inspire work from a from home, work from a distance. Um, it required a new way of thinking about um, what you um, how you ask and interact and c- collaborate with one another. Um, and it m- mattered a lot that leaders begin to trust their people because they weren't able to um you know, didn't have the same oversight uh, with a workforce that was largely working from home. And so once you give that trust, I trust you to do this work, to get this job done, to complete your your assignments with, with professionalism, you know, and maybe you have to juggle uh, your child's homework, uh, school, homeschooling, essentially. Um, maybe you're dealing with um, elder parents who uh, you know have greater susceptibility to COVID, uh, maybe you're just fearful of COVID itself. I'm going to let you figure out how best to get your work done. When you give that trust and agency to, uh, to your team, to your employees, it's really hard to get it back. They're, they're not going to come back to the office and say, you know, by the way, it's okay if you don't trust me now and tell me exactly how I should be managed throughout the day and get my tasks done. It just isn't, you're not going to put that genie back in the bottle
0: talking about these questions you said you're not sure of the questions um your book uh, uh the former uh uh human resources uh, head of human resources at GE just said that you have written the most important book on management for the post-covid era that's the blurb that appears for the book um are you trying in the empathy advantage to provide questions for Managers for leaders—is that the purpose of your book?
1: I think what we're trying to say to leaders is, what got you here won't get you where is go- where where we're going next. That that again, so much change, changes is happening at an exponential rate. That the way that you, the molds that you use, the maps that you use to um, assume your seniority and management leadership, aren't the same molds and maps that will will work. Um, in a in a rapidly changing, largely unknowable future. So yes, ask different questions. Ask questions about what do we know, what don't we know? You know, if you're talking about realms so of the known, knowns, and the known unknowns, and the unknowable unknowns, and how all the other ways he, he, he framed that, we're really, I think, in a period of a lot you know, a lot of unknowable um, future. Right? We we can make guesses at where things are going. We can drive things to certain destinations, but I think we have to be prepared all the time to be reevaluating. What, do we, what did we know yesterday that's no longer true today? What do we not know about tomorrow that we can build capacity to be responsive to? And I think that's the role of leadership today is being constantly willing to ask these questions of you know, and, and to be able to say, and we say this in the book, I don't know. I don't know, but we're gonna learn together. And I think that level of uh, vulnerability from a leader to say that I don't know, um, and then to guide them forward on a a journey of discovery is a very different and I think most appropriate role um, in our our society or culture today, versus the, I'm the all knowing boss and you need to do as I say. That I just don't think is, is even possible, let alone wise.
0: You say, Chris, the future is unknowable. I mean, it's no more unknowable or less unknowable in 2023 than it was in 2016. I still don't really understand why COVID has profoundly changed. So I take your point that maybe uh, leaders had to trust their, their workers a little bit more during COVID. Now they're having second thoughts and they're trying to get everyone back in the office. And that's a struggle. Uh, But what about the the, the structural forces changing work from the mid-teens to today? Has anything really changed?
1: I think the workforce has changed dramatically. We're now in a place where we're we're leading three or four generations of of workers. People are working longer. Um, People who are coming into the workforce have come of age in a very different kind of work environment from the one that sort of the office environment that we're comfortable and, and accustomed to. Um, I think so much about our our cultural shifts are making their way into the workplace. It's just a really different workforce. Um, again, not created by COVID, but amplified by COVID in a lot of ways.
0: Is this generational? I have to admit, I don't. I'm. I'm not, again. I'm not convinced with this. I, uh, I mean, at, at times when it's easy to get work, uh, employers uh, employees always have a little bit more power, um, but. Do you expect this, for example, to survive the AI, dis- the, the AI disruption? Um, we did a show earlier today with Ashley Reckonati. has a new book out, AI Battle Royale. He suggests that um, the only way to protect your job from disruption in, in what he calls the fourth industrial revolution of, of AI is to run faster than you, your fellow worker. What's different about today? Uh, technolo- technological, and you've been in the technology disruption business for a while. You uh, you were the, uh, I think, the founder, the organizer of the demo conference. So you know the disruption that technology has brought. Um, I, I don't really see why it's any different today than it was, you know, the invention of social media or the internet or, 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 or cryptocurrencies. What's different today?
1: I think it's disruption at a pace that we've not seen before. And that's the difference. That... Um, the time a company, for example, I'm going to get my numbers quite right, but uh, stays on the S&P 500 is as from you know certainly 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 20, 10 years ago has shrunk dramatically. It's so so the the forces of change are just coming at us more much more quickly. The time to uh, you know it took to uh, for electricity to become uh, in most households in the United States was decades. The time it took for the iPhone to be in every household was years. So that this compression speed at which things are are changing, in which um, products are are won and lost in the marketplace, are just um, has become so compressed that this, I don't know how you, I, I mean, I, I get the point of, you just got to run faster than the other guy. I just don't think that's, That's even a smart race to enter, because no one's going to win that. No one's going to be able to outrun the pace of change. So you've got to really think about how you, I think, go together, not compete with one another in order to build capacity that can be responsive to changes in the market.
0: But aren't you really telling leaders what you want them to hear? Maybe not you, but isn't there, you know, this this perhaps ideology of collaboration and communication i've heard it time and time again it never seems to work the companies that do best are the ones run by rather nasty characters like steve jobs or or elon musk uh and the idea of leaders not really leading and collaborating and talking to their employees never really works what what are your examples of of, of models for this
1: I think we should, should be careful of what examples we choose. And and um, one could, I think, make the case that Elon Musk's style of leadership isn't doing uh, good business, uh, isn't a good business for Twitter at the moment. Uh, you know, maybe that emerges, but certainly the, the most recent um, financial. No, I, I take that point. Of his
0: model worked. At, I mean, I, I'm certainly no great fan of that model. I wouldn't want to work for him, but it worked at Tesla. Um, and it might've worked at SpaceX, but, but I take your point.
1: But here's, here's, I think the, the real point, I mean, and and what we try to, the case we're trying to make in the, the book is that we're moving from a p- place in a time when people were simply, you know, expense lines in, in corporate budgets um, that needed to be, you know, expenses needed to ma- be managed and cut to a place where the, 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 boldest reaction or, or ability capacity to respond to a marketplace is by unleashing human capital human human value right and i think that takes it, it's a pretty big mind shift from a place where you think that people are disposable cogs to people are are um you know, are great a, a great asset that can can quickly adapt to changing times, and to be invested in rather than uh, you know cost to contain. That shift to the to a human value era of business, I think, um, and where we, you know we we see um, actually has has greater potential in business overall. That either always be those outlier cases of the tyrannical manager who scares people to death so that they work harder but i don't think that that people now and this i think is a, a result of covid have reevaluated where work fits into their lives they've reevaluated what they're willing to do and for what uh, what exchange and so working too many hours at too little wage is just not an interesting idea anymore for for most workers and and so the mindset shift i think is a, is away from this belief that that workers are owned by a company that need to be managed by, that need to be um, contained by a company to the, to that, your human capital, the people that come into your organization need to be, um, uh, you know, there's potential there that needs to be unleashed to provide the capacity to respond to shifts and changes in the market.
0: I wish I could, I wish I had faith in what you're saying as a Wall Street, uh, sorry, the Washington Post uh, this morning leads with uh, a story about a mile long line for free food offering a warning as COVID benefits end. Um, it, what you're saying sounds to me a little bit like a, a Silicon Valley conceit. If you're a well paid tech r- worker, you can maybe do a little bit of part time at Google or Facebook or Amazon or Apple and survive. But for most people, that's not affordable. And we live, uh, Chris, I don't need to tell you this, we live in an age of AI, billions of dollars are quite literally being poured into this new AI economy on a daily basis uh, for technology that will, in theory at least, replace human beings. Um, Are you not a little fearful that your vision, which is rather heartwarming, isn't true in reality?
1: this is not easy. I, I guarantee you that, but I've been, you know, I've started covering AI. It was my first beat when I began covering technology in 1984. I've seen how far that technology has come and how much investment and time it's taken to get to where it is today. And, and it's impressive, but it is not human. And I think that we are, um, you know, we are at a place in our society um, that, where we need to reclaim our humanity if we are going to maintain a civil, uh, a civil democracy, for example. And I think that starts with, with understanding that human capacity is valuable and is valued and that we, um, as leaders of our organizations, need to understand that the answers to the questions that we don't know, and maybe don't even know well enough to, to ask, are best found in the people that we bring together to solve these problems.
0: Well, let's get to your book, The Empathy Advantage. You suggest that it's driven by four shifts. Um, Perhaps you might talk about these shifts, uh, mindset, culture, approach, and behavior. What are the shifts that are driving um, what you call the empathy advantage or the empathy economy, perhaps?
1: Yeah, well, I think let's start You know, with, we've kind of already talked about mindset. Mindset, I think we're shifting from a place where um, the boss was the all-knowing, omnipotent leader who um, used whatever um, carrot and stick was required to, to drive productivity, to um, a time when um, leadership is, is through, um, or the job of the leader is to be a, a catalyst for performance. Um, so you're moving from being the authoritarian boss to a, a much more uh, into a coaching or a catalyst role. Um, and and I think that, you know, sort of the shortcut we often use is, you know, people no longer work for you. You work for them. Your job as a leader is to maximize the uh, the capacity of your team, not to.
0: Do you have a, a leader in mind when you you describe that? Are there models for this type of leadership that work?
1: Yeah, I think that, that there are lots of, of individuals, and we talked to a number of them, um, you know, in, in the book um, where we you know see teams that, uh, for example, um, this is uh, one of the the stories we t- tell about. Um, in, um yes in uh, aqueduct that's the name of the company where you know part of their their company performance is about um, really assessing and they, they talk about the not the, sort of the exit interview but really understanding why why people are staying in the company what's the what is the reason that people continue to come to work and stay engaged? To really understand how to better construct their their what we think of as their human resource programs, but um, how to bring people together in a much more productive way? Um, and it's just one example. I think there are lots of companies that are adopting this. Some out of necessity, because they weren't in a place where they had uh, again that command and control uh, environment. Um, so they had to do a lot more outreach, a lot more coaching, a lot more, providing a lot more um, uh, kind of engagement resources to really hear where their people were. We, you know, one, I think, positive benefit of COVID is that we, um, we saw a need to, to create team collaboration to communication. I, I think collaboration is often, often overused. We had to find new vehicles for people to come together. And I think that's a a real benefit if you think about your role as a leader, um, as more of a catalyst, as more of a uh, curator of the work experience, then you're much more purposeful. Time doesn't get wasted in silly meetings, for example. You're much, there's a reason for people to come together um, to do a certain kind of work that, that is best done when they are together. And then there's plenty of opportunity for people to work separately when that work is better done in that way. So I think that kind of understanding of, of the dynamic of how we use people's time, which is you know our one unrenewable resource um, to better maximize our performance uh, is just one of those shifts, one of those mind shifts.
0: So uh, we talked about mindset, mindset and culture. Um... What about approach and behavior, the other two pillars of, in in your view of driving the future of work? How have they changed in COVID?
1: Yeah, well, we talk about behavior in in what, how do you motivate people to to work well? And traditionally, if I think about sort of pre pre COVID, the the motivationals we thought of as perks. You know, let's have a. a better coffee machine and free lunches and and masseuses that come in and we'll make this place an, an enjoyable place to work so that people want to want to come here and want to be part of our organization the
0: google the google model or the
1: example yeah sure absolutely i mean that's
0: sushi sushi or you can eat sushi as long as you stay in the office for 22 hours a day
1: that's right exactly well that's again that that is treating um these perks as as an expense and as a as a carrot to get people to to come into the office but is it really motivating people to to do the work and i would argue that you know in some cases um but in many most cases it's not it's again butts in seats is not the same as performance when you can really tap into the things that the that are intrinsic motivators what 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 is someone's purpose for being there what is their their the, where, what gives them satisfaction in doing the work? How can you tap that so that performance is driven intrinsically rather than through this carrot stick methodology? Um, you actually find you know much stronger, um, stronger benefits, stronger performance.
0: Let's deal with the the uh, the gorilla in the room, the E word, empathy. Your book's called the Empathy Advantage. I have to admit, it's a, it's a word that I have no idea really what it means. I know I can look it up. We've done so many shows on it, on medicine, for example, with someone telling us that doctors need to be more empathetic. Elisa Apple, a, a therapist, suggesting that the best way to relieve stress is by being empathetic. Um, Susan McKenty Brady, another management consultant like you, believes that empathy might help end the war in Ukraine. We did that interview last year. does not seem as it uh, had much impact, certainly on Vladimir Putin. I'm not sure he's a particularly empathetic yeah. uh, man. Uh, Natalie Petterhoof, another expert on digital technology and empathy. What, what do you mean by this word? And is this a word that I suspect has just lost all meaning? It just gets used all the time and people almost in a religious way that, that words are important, but certain words become so ubiquitous that they, they become meaningless.
1: Sure, I think, for example, we said it a little bit ago, collaboration is one of those words that it, you put two people in a room together and supposedly they're collaborating, and they may or may not be at all. And you know, listen, empathy very, you know, fundamentally is my ability or one's ability to put themselves in the place of another to understand their perspective, how they're thinking, how they're feeling, what is impacting them both positively and negatively. Um, but empathy you know, to do that, I can, you know, I can think about your position, who you are, and, and the kinds of things you read, and, and how your 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 daily life affects this interview. Um, that's not empathy. That's just that's an under that, that's an understanding. That's a lens.
0: That fails, when, right? Yeah, it's, it's just it's, it's what, to make someone when, else happy.
1: It, that's right. Empathy without action is, is a point of view. And I think what we're arguing for in, in this book is it's a starting place is that empathetic understanding of, of your workforce and then your ability to act on it in ways that allow people to feel that they are valued um, beyond uh, simply the paycheck or the pat on the back. Or the the employee of the month award. It's creating a a bond that's that's based on shared values and an exchange of appreciation of those values toward work, working toward a goal together in a workplace.
0: I mean, all this sounds good, but I mean, anyone can talk the language, uh, Chris. As you know, I'm sure you're familiar with Sherry Turkle and her work. She's been on the show many times. She's always reminded uh, me and, and, and our viewers and listeners about the the perils of pretend empathy. It seems as if many business leaders are very good at talking the talk. And one who comes to mind is Mark Benioff of Salesforce. I know you've worked with Salesforce and Benioff in the past. He's always talked this language. And then there was a piece this week, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, about massive layoffs at Salesforce. And suddenly he's forgotten all the language of empathy and uh, collaboration and all the rest of it. Uh, And again, I'm not suggesting that you're encouraging that kind of dishonesty, but how can we distinguish fake empathy from the real type? How can we make sure that men like Benioff don't use this language to benefit themselves and their companies?
1: Well, at the end of the day, maybe at the beginning of the day, it's it's not the language, it's the, the action, right? To say I'm empathetic and then turn around and do something that is is empathetic. fire
0: everyone like benioff did
1: yeah and, and listen i know i have a layoffs are an interesting and challenging problem um they can be done with empathy i'd like to believe that reports in my career i've when i've had to at ben at that junction that i've been able to do that in in a way that um is kind and empathetic um it's never fun it's never good and it feels awful right nobody wants to maybe there are people who like to fire people, but certainly I'm not one of those people. Um, but it's what you do in your everyday um, behaviors. Are you leading with, uh, with candor? Are you saying, allowing yourself to be vulnerable to the idea that maybe you don't have all the answers? Um, are you, um, you know, asking the right questions and treating people with compassion? those act- actions will, you know, always speak louder than any um, would, would Cheryl Sherick talked about, you know, what is it in- inauthentic um, uh, empathy, yeah. that, that, that's, that just uh, yeah, pretend empathy, um,
0: fake empathy, which of course, machines are very good at. Um, Chris, you're a consultant, I mean, you're a, not a, a, a major consultant. We we did some shows on the consulting industry. Did one uh, actually yesterday with Rosie Collington, who has a new book out called uh, "The Big Con: How the Consulting Industry Weakens Our Businesses, Infantilizes Our Governments, and Warps Our Economic uh, Our Economies." Now, I'm not suggesting you're to blame for that, but the McKinseys and the Boston Consultancies of the world—you you can imagine her argument. What role do you think consultants have from smaller ones like yourselves to the large multinationals in telling the truth to their clients and not just feeding them stuff that they really want to hear that makes them feel good?
1: Well, I don't think that a, a credible consultant is, is there to just affirm a previously held position, right? That may be what their, their work discovers, but the role of of a consultant is to help people and as I, and I believe to help people under really make sure that they're asking the right questions, solving the right problems. And and so it's as much problem finding as it is problem solving. Um, There are uh, a lot of consultants who are very, very good at that. And there are a lot of consulting agencies that are really, really good at being consulting agencies and creating uh, massive PowerPoint decks um, that, you know, may or may not actually move the needle. I, you know, consulting is a, is a broad term to cover a lot of different uh, services. And um, you know, I don't want to do a takedown of an industry. I think it sounds like we've got uh, some interesting reading ahead. But um, I think the best consultants are there to help people make sure they're working on the right problems and asking the right questions to get them solved well.
0: Do you think there's a gendered quality to this, Chris? I know you've always been interested in these issues. I mean, there are very still many, many fewer female leaders than male leaders. Does the idea of empathy come perhaps more naturally to some women? Uh, Do men struggle more with recognizing that they might be wrong and admitting that they don't have all the answers?
1: I think there's some research that suggests that that's true. And... um, I also think that that generationally, um, it's uh, women are. And this is a very maybe it's a risky statement. I think women are cultured, uh, cultivated to believe that um, they don't have the answers, um, and men are are um, cultivated to believe that they should. If they don't have the answers, they should fake it till they make it. Um, an idea um, that is as much about conning people out of, uh, into believing that you're competent than it is about actually gaining skill. Um, and I think those, those, that's a very broad statement, but I think that those two, um, ways in which we've been groomed as as you know, male or female or wherever you fall on that spectrum is, is, um, is very different. You know, it does suggest that women, um, and you know again data says it that women tend to be more empathetic as leaders than
0: than do men so maybe we need more women leaders um coming back to the question of asking the right uh questions uh, you 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 note on your website it's difficult to find the right answers if you aren't asking the right questions do you think as a follow-up to the need for more female leaders when it comes to empathy and leadership and acknowledging they don't have all the answers that women are better at asking questions too than men
1: You know, I don't know Um, this is is the right answer. I think that um, what I do know is that the right answer is when we bring the broadest possible um, mindsets, perspectives, points of view to the table. And so whether it's more women in leadership, more people of color in in leadership, more people from um, differing backgrounds in leadership, um, I believe organizations will do better the more they ask questions of more different people, and you know, we tend to, I think, go into you know a lot of you know failed products are because we ask the same question of the same person again and again, um, and and to have this confirmation bias rather than breaking out of those molds and asking our questions to a broader a gr- broader group of people. So I think that argues whether it's more women in leadership more empathetic leaders of any gender, um, it really argues for more diverse perspectives that allow us to make sure we're tearing back the, the peeling back the onion in a way that gets to the right answers.
0: Chris, final question. Um, uh, you, as I said, people will know you as the founder of the Demo Conference. Now you're very much involved with a, a startup constituent connection um, uh, a, a platform that powers the conversations that ignite change. So it's a, in I guess, in a, in a way, a political uh, platform. We we did a show um, with a Dutch-based architect last week, Rania de Graaf, on how citizen buildings. He's an architect. Have been infected by corporate misuse of words like wellness, innovation, and livability. When it comes to politics and American democracy, which arguably isn't in the best state it's ever been in do you think it's important to get our language right um and does business have a role in that i mean in terms of this broader crisis of democracy and accountability what is the role both of business and language in in trying to fix what's gone wrong
1: that is the million dollar question maybe it's the trillion dollar question um I think that uh, we have, our language has become um, polarizing and um, even worse empty, Um, but we throw it around with great vigor um, to presumably make a point. And one of our biggest challenges right now, I think in this country, is that we actually aren't talking to each other. We're talking past each other. Uh, We're not talking enough uh, about the things that really matter, and um, that how we change the narrative from if you don't agree with me, you must hate me and hate our country. Um, again, on it doesn't really matter where you fit on the political spectrum. The, the knee-jerk reaction is your lack of agreement suggests that you're an idiot. Um, it's a hard place to start a conversation from, regardless of, of the language we use. And so we, we come up with these code words like woke or, or MAGA to, um, to separate us, to, to, to continue uh, and reinforce the polarization. And I think it's, it's um, one of the biggest crises in our country today.
0: Maybe we need more linguistic empathy, Chris, or is that part of the problem?
1: You know, I think that we, we ought to just start talking. And one of the things that's, that uh, Constituent Connection is doing is creating a platform that makes it affordable for, um, for politicians, uh, candidates, to, to actually be engaged in conversation. And during the, the last general election, I had the privilege of beta testing that software with a number of campaigns and actually finding that you can get into some really interesting and deep conversations with people via text even, um, when you get past the vituperative knee-jerk reactions, um, to have someone um, you know, understand that there's a human being on the other side of that text message and that you can exchange ideas without exchanging insults um, is actually really powerful. Maybe it changes minds, maybe it doesn't, but it actually gets people thinking. And I think there's real value in that.